Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. This morning we're going to be talking about the issue of satisfaction. And uh, for some of us who are a little bit older, and maybe I could just start with those of us 40 and up, sometimes satisfaction is... Uh, something that can be elusive. We thought all our activities and hopes and dreams that we started out with in our teens and 20s that somehow it bring us to this resting place. But if there's one thing that I notice about many, many people over 40, is there anything but resting? Maybe restless is the better word for these people. So today I'm going to be addressing that. And if you're under that age of 40 and you're 20 and 30 or 35 or whatever, you might listen real closely because you might be directing yourself in a path that you think is going to bring you to the spot that many of us thought, and yet it didn't. And uh, we're going to be talking about that in the next uh, few moments. To start us off with, I'd like you to turn over to Genesis, the uh, first book in the Bible, Genesis chapter 25. And as you're doing so, let me uh, tell you about one of the dark, darker sides of my teenage years that some of you don't know. I bet you would have never guessed this about me. I don't think I've ever brought it up. But when I was a teenager, I played in a rock band. Uh, played is kind of a mild exaggeration, but uh, there were some guys, they needed some guy to thump a bass guitar, and I knew a little bit of music, not much, but I could do that. So I joined up with uh, four other fellows, and for about three years during my high school years, I played in this rock group. Uh, not the Led Zeppelin kind, but more of the Beatle and uh, those kind of 60s songs that we're now familiar with, at least a lot of us. And I just want you to know, we, we were pretty awesome. We really were. <laughs> I mean, we played in all kinds of hot night spots like the Ruston Recreation Center, Ruston State School. Uh, occasionally, they even invited us over to Louisiana Tech to do a gig occasionally. And we'd do that, and, and in those times when I, I would uh, play in those spots, one of the songs that uh, everyone loved and had had that hard, driving, kind of pulsating beat that would really whip the hundreds and sometimes fifties, that's probably more accurate, the fifties into a wild frenzy, was the old Rolling Stones song. Uh, I can't get no satisfaction. Now, I know some of you are probably shocked <laughs> to know that a pastor of this church could be leading this frenzied primal chant <laughs> to many, many people in his bygone days. But I did that, I have to confess. But let me ask you, how many of you know that song? Let me just see your hands. <laughs> okay, just so you won't get smug on me while I'm filleting myself out in front of you. But you know, that song, if you think about it, and I, I won't rehearse the uh, actual verses because they're, they're somewhat lewd, but uh, those, those verses gave a very clear and unmistakable impression to a generation that now we can look back on and I think accurately say was somewhat self-centered, uh, self-indulgent, and very self-inflated about how they were going to change the world. And we were singing that song thinking that we were going to lift off all the restraints and we were going to experience life to the fullest. And out of that, we were going to get satisfaction. And Jagger's words, Mick Jagger's words here, I can't get no satisfaction, were pointing all of us 
to that sensual arena of unbridled passions where we would get satisfaction. So for the last 30 years, many of us have traveled down that road and we've experienced it pretty well. But it didn't bring satisfaction, did it? No, it didn't. Not if we're really honest. It brought a lot of other things. And quite frankly, if, if, if Mick Jagger were writing that song today and was really honest with us, he, he would sing that same song, but maybe in place of satisfaction, he would use the more accurate term, cheap, dangerous thrills. That's what we couldn't get in the 60s and then threw off everything and got it. We've had a lot of cheap, dangerous thrills over the last 30 years, and we've indulged that to the hilt. But you know, what I hear people still crying out for in the 90s after all that time is that same song, but looking in a different direction, or maybe many directions. I can't get no satisfaction in life. Where is satisfaction? What is satisfaction? Maybe that's the best place to start. You know, when you think about what is satisfaction, when I think of that, I think of some deep sense that comes to a person after they have given themselves to something or to someone to such an extent that they've spent themselves and yet after doing that look back on that and realize that not only did they give themselves away but at the same time in some mysterious way they found themselves. <laughs> that, that the very process that they went through somehow in some mystical way completed themselves or maybe even in that process if it was the right thing and the right someone that somehow that process caused their humanity to become complete and in that moment after giving so much their body and their soul and their spirit resonates with this sense of vibrant completeness this sense of I fulfilled my true humanity now, to me, that would be satisfaction. But our world doesn't know a lot about that. In fact, I see a lot of people who've done a lot of things and have a lot of things. Boy, they look real good, and they're Christians. But over coffee, or out at a party, they'll start talking about how restless they are, which is, to me, the opposite of satisfaction. Still on the search. That's the 60s. Still looking in the crevices and the corners of extremism to try to find something that will bring completeness to me. Yet they haven't found it yet, even as a Christian. This morning what I'd like to do is re-examine the formula for satisfaction. Maybe that's the problem, is our mix isn't right. But I want to start here by looking at Abraham because Abraham had just passed out of life into death and Moses is recording that event and Interestingly enough, in chapter 25, he selects the word satisfaction as the outstanding feature of Abraham's life. And in verses verse 8, 7, and 8, in writing Abraham's obituary, this is what he says. And these are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. And Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. Boy, wouldn't you like that on your tombstone? Can't you see somebody kicking through the leaves and coming up upon your grave marker? And there it is, Joe Smith, Sally Jones, satisfied. That'd be a great statement, wouldn't it? 
Well, how did Abraham get this kind of satisfaction in his life? Well, that's what we're going to explore somewhat, but I can tell you where he didn't get it. You can look back over his life and do the research yourself. But he certainly didn't get it because he had unabated success in his life. He didn't have that. Abraham had a lot of failure in his life. He made a lot of mistakes. He certainly didn't get a satisfaction because he was comfortable. <laughs> what God called him to was anything but comfortable. It wasn't because he was never hurt. Abraham was hurt a lot. He hurt other people. Certainly wasn't because he had some great accumulation of power and prestige. When God called him out of Ur, he gave up a lot of that. When he got to Palestine, he lost even more of that. Matter of fact, when he died, he had no treasure chest at all. No great estate to leave to his children. He just passed out of this life into the next, satisfied. Wow. Well, that's what he didn't. What is it? Well, to discover what it is, we're going to move from Abraham to Jesus. And we're going to look in the life of Jesus in his last hours and find some of the insight that he gives to us in John chapter 13. You might turn there. And as you're turning there, let me mention to you that this 13th chapter of John is the beginning of what theologians call the upper room discourse. It's the last moment that Jesus had in an upper room with his disciples that was tranquil. That is, before his death, which was coming in the next 24 hours. And so in this last moment, what Jesus does is give to his disciples the secrets of true humanity. The secrets of being satisfied with life. He takes five chapters, that's how much John does out of his gospel, for this last moment of tranquility in Jesus' life. Five full chapters. Theologians call this particular, particular section of Scripture the Holy of Holies of the Bible. Now we're just going to begin it. Maybe you can continue it during the week. But this is an incredible passage of Scripture. But let's start where it starts in verse 1. It says, Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that His hour had come, that He should depart out of this world to the Father, having loved His own who were in the world, He loved them to the end. And during supper... The devil, having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come, back, come forth from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his garments and taking a towel, he girded himself about. Now in those opening verses, it may not be immediately evident to you, but those verses in reality speak of a man who's satisfied with his life. Because in those first four verses, there's all kinds of potential responses, though Jesus chooses only one. The response He chooses, by the way, is quite remarkable. Because there's no sense or panic or despair in this final hour of Jesus' life. There's just action. And a significant kind of action that demonstrates satisfaction. You know, each of these verses say something about a possible response that Jesus could have had. Look, first of all, at verse 1. It says that Jesus knew His hour had come that He should depart out of this world. He knew that His crucifixion was about to take place. And in that, a possible response Jesus could have had in this final hour is the response of despair. I mean, what had He done? He could look at His life and Look back to the fact that he had given three years of himself and all he had to show for it in this final hour was 12 men. 12 preoccupied men, as we'll see in a moment, 
huddled over in a corner, who were unconcerned with what was about to take place in his life. He had created no movement that he intended to create. He had seen no major successes, at least visibly. And you know, it's easy for a person in that kind of situation to kind of look over their life and just despair. You know, there are people who die in despair. People who gave their whole lives to things, and yet at the end of their life, rather than rejoicing in the fruit of their labor, they look back over their company life and the, the strategies they put forth and all the things they invested in their lives, and their response at the end is anything but satisfaction. And I've been with those people. Just despair that it meant nothing, that it really accomplished nothing significant. Another response Jesus could have had is found in the second line of verse 1. It says, having loved his own to the end. You know, in that Jesus could have become bitter. Over in Luke chapter 22, which we won't look at, but in that passage it says, in this very moment while Jesus was preparing this final supper, his disciples were all huddled together talking about what portion of the kingdom they would receive, how great they would become. See, their mind was still set, even though they knew things seemed to be in panic, they still thought that somehow Jesus, who they believed to be the Messiah, would somehow reverse all those trends and usher in His kingdom, and it would be a kingdom of grandeur and a kingdom of power. And they were over there slicing up the parts of the pie, kind of thinking, what part's going to be mine and how big is it going to be? Just like I think some older people feel when they have raised a family and that family becomes as selfish as they've been. And at the end, they sense that all the kids are thinking of is, when mom and dad pass off, how much will I get? And you know what that feels? That feels real bitter to me. Jesus was about to leave all this into their hands, and they were over there totally preoccupied with something different than what he was preoccupied with. And it had been real easy for him to become bitter. In verse 2, it says that he thought about Judas as well, the one who was going to betray him. I think that could have brought a response of deep anger and hostility from Jesus. Verse 3, it says that Jesus knew, though, that he was going back to God. He had come from God, and he was going back to God. And I wonder if Jesus didn't have a temptation at that moment to be prideful. To say, I came and I gave it my best shot. But these inferior people just can't figure it out. And this kind of sense at the end of, I've lived life better than them, I'm better, and the heck with them, I'm going home. He could have had that response. But you know, you see none of those, though those are typical human responses at the end of life. Instead, in verse 4, Jesus does something that's quite remarkable. It says that He rose from supper and He laid aside His garments and taking a towel, He girded Himself about and then he poured water into the basin, verse 5, and began to wash the disciples' feet. You don't get this sense of despair or anger or bitterness or anything like that. You get instead a very calm and deliberate, self-authenticating kind of action which indicates this man, and Jesus, by the way, was a man as well as God, that this man was satisfied. Now let me tell you how I know he was satisfied. A satisfied person is a person in whom, in their final hour of life, would choose to do what they've always been doing. See, in this last moment, Jesus doesn't panic. He doesn't try to make up or 
are, are, are curse his existence for his failures or anything like that. You don't see any of that. You just see Jesus going about in a symbolic way what he had been doing his whole life. You know what that is? That's the sign of a man who has been satisfied with his life. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was another such person in history. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor, a very young German pastor who was quite brilliant, very wise beyond his age, and he served a church during the time that Hitler rose to power. In fact, he was one of the few pastors that opposed Hitler as he began to become into prominence. And as he did so, because of his unique theological style, he had people all over the world trying to rescue him from Nazi Germany. Many people in the States provided channels and means and money for Bonhoeffer to come live safely and comfortably in America during World War II. And yet when given those opportunities, in every case, Bonhoeffer said no. He said, I choose to be with my countrymen. And as you might be well aware, he was immediately imprisoned for his, quote, subversive activities. He was treated with great hostility during his imprisonment in one of the great concentration camps there in Germany, and yet he was an inspiration to all, he, all that knew him during his time there. Wrote a lot of uh, literature during that time, did a lot of ministry during that time. It came towards the end of the war where his particular concentration camp was about to be liberated. They knew liberation was right around the corner. The concentration camp was abuzz with this sense of, of freedom for the first time in, in five years. And yet the Germans who had suffered so much under Bonhoeffer's ministry, because he was in a sense a political pawn as well, since they knew they had lost the cause, in a final act of spite and hatred, the day before that camp was liberated, they hung Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I often wonder, what would I do in a situation like that? Would, would Bonhoeffer have responded as a man who would say, here I've given my whole life to my countrymen and served here and risked my life. And here at the very end, God, you're going to punish me this way. could have had that response of bitterness. Or he could have been real angry and said, I'm going to be the one taken and all these lesser people, these people that I've ministered to, they're going to go free. Or he could have cursed the Germans all the way to the gallows. But you know what Bonhoeffer did? Bonhoeffer asked for the privilege of rising early that day. And he went into the prison and he served communion to all those in the prison. And he prayed with them. And he blessed them. And he tried to comfort their hurts. And he tried to envision for them their freedom. And when he had finished, he walked off triumphantly to be hung. That's what he did. And you know why he did that? Because he was satisfied with his life. And when given a last moment, because of that satisfaction and because of that calling that he knew was from God, he did, he chose to do what he had always done. That's a man who's satisfied. Jesus was a satisfied man. Not just in deed here, but he expressed that in word as well. If you'll just keep your finger in John 13 and turn over to John 17, you'll see how Jesus expresses his satisfaction in words too at the end of this upper room discourse when he leads his men in a final prayer. And in that final prayer he makes a number of I statements. But they're not I in the sense of 
egotistical, their I in the sense of satisfying. Look at verse 4. He said, I glorified thee on the earth, O Father. And in verse 6, he said, I manifested thy name to men. Verse 14, he says, I have given them, these men, thy word. Verse 18, he says, As thou didst send me into the world, I sent them into the world. Verse 22, And the glory which thou hast given me, I have given to them. You know, those are statements of satisfaction. Statements of accomplishment. Not statements of comfort. Not, not statements of, I could have done something better with my life. Those are statements of someone who feels like he really did something in life. He completed himself. In the process, he found his true humanity. That's what they express. You know, there are two things I can learn from just these opening observations. And that's this. You might jot them down about satisfaction and the formula for satisfaction. One aspect of this formula that you can include is this. Satisfaction is found by doing something for others. Something for others. You know, all through this high priestly prayer, the I statements go outward. Jesus' arrow in life did not point to Himself. Jesus' arrow in life always pointed away from Himself to others. And could it be that part of our problem with not finding satisfaction, whether we care to really admit it or not, is most of the time our arrow is pointed inward, not outward. See, he says, I glorified thee, not me. I manifested thy name, not my name. I gave them thy word. I served. I sent them out. And the glory which you were willing to give to me, I didn't embrace and hold on to. <laughs> what did he do with it? I gave that glory away. See, his arrow was pointed outward. Most of us in our country build this giant shrine that's called me and myself and I. We worship there a lot. But not Jesus. Secondly, I see in that high priestly prayer that satisfaction comes in God's call upon our life. And I need to add that into my equation. Because if you'll notice in verse 4, when he says, I glorified thee on the earth, he then follows it up with a statement in John 17 with this. Having accomplished the work which Thou gave to me. You see, that sounds like a satisfied man to me. A guy who was given a work and he, he really labored at that work and he's saying, I did it. I accomplished it. And that tells me something about satisfaction and that is that satisfaction oftentimes is back-end loaded. You know, we live with a culture that has to be constantly stimulated emotionally. And what we want is the cheap thrill on the front end to move us into something. That's why so many groups, whether they're civic or service-minded groups or even churches oftentimes, try to entertain people, give them the thrill on the front end so they might do something for them. But see, that's not the path of satisfaction. The path of satisfaction is God's call on my life. And then I set forth in faith whether I feel good about it or not, but I have a promise that's been given to me, and that is it's back in loaded. And at the end, when it's all said and done, I will be there just like Jesus was there, just like Bonhoeffer was there, just like Abraham was there, and my spirit and my soul will resonate with this sense of completion. 
not just cheap thrills. And that's what those verses seem to indicate. It also tells us that Jesus being the model of true satisfaction, He would tell us you've got to point your arrow outward and you've got to look to God to find out what He wants to do with your life. Not just what you want to do with it. Now some of you are probably asking, well, how do I discover God's calling on my life? I mean, I'd like to do something. I mean, I have a job and all that, but how can I mix all that together and feel like I've got God's call upon my life? Well, that's what verses 6 through 17 begin to give us some insight into. It won't clear it all up, but it does give us some insight and some help in that regard. You see, Jesus sets about to wash these disciples' feet in verse 5, and that was a very common custom, though not for the head of the house. See, in the old days, if I were to invite you to my house for a party, and that's what this Passover meal was, what you would do is you'd go down, because you didn't have a bathtub in your house, most people didn't, you'd go down to one of the big Roman baths in the city. You would go in there and you'd take a long, hot, steamy bath, feel real good, put on your best clothes to come over to my house feeling refreshed. But on your way over, that moisture that's still on your feet and the fact that you're wearing sandals, you'd gather a lot of dirt. When you came in to sit down, what I would do as your host is I would want you to feel totally refreshed, so I would order one of my house servants to come over and grab a basin and clean off your dust-collected feet. And, you'd, and, and then you would be ready for the occasion. What stands out here is the fact that Jesus doesn't call a house servant. He does it Himself. Jesus assumes the position of a servant, which I'm sure shocked the disciples and if you look at Peter's response there in verse 6, he's always the vocal one, by the way. He expresses that because it said, and when he came to Simon Peter, everybody else was kind of clamped up, but Peter says, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus says in verse 7, what I do you do not realize now, but you shall understand hereafter. Now, as I've looked over that and read through the Gospels, it's my conclusion that if this would have been a real spiritual moment for Peter, he would have made the word association that's going on here. I mean, Jesus had served him his whole life, and here's Jesus about to go to the Father, and He's serving Him again. And, and, and I think Peter, as a spiritual man, would have fallen down and said, Lord, You have served me your whole life, and here You are doing it again. But remember, these men's heads were filled with grandeur. They, they could envision this kingdom, this, this great colossal temple of Jesus sitting on the throne in this giant throne room, and they would be all standing around as, as district supervisors. Probably have a tag that said, district supervisor, boss. And they could tell people what to do, and they'd have a big nice chariot and drive to their home and sit in this big plush home and order people around. That's where they were. So when Jesus comes to do that, they're kind of shocked. That's not what they got in mind. They're preoccupied with a prosperity Christianity. So that blocked the meaning of the moment. But nonetheless, Jesus continues there, and as He continues, Peter's objections turn to a certain indignancy. Notice what He says in verse 8. Peter said to Jesus when He continued on, Never shall you wash My feet. And I have a question for you as you read that. When, Je when Peter said that to Jesus, whose concern is he looking out for in that moment? Is he looking out for the concern of Jesus and the fact that he's doing something that's beneath a Lord? Or is he really concerned about himself? 
you know, I wish that you would do something. This is a, kind of an alteration of the text, and I don't mean for this to uh, say that this is actually in the text, but I think this is the meaning of the text. If you would just put an X over the word you in verse 8, and just put the word I, I think you have a real proper interpretation. See, what he's really saying is not, never shall you wash my feet. What he's really saying is, never will I wash feet. I'm not in it for that. I didn't follow you for that. You're a symbol. You're a hope of what I want to become. And I certainly don't want to do that. And I'm not. And so you're not. That's where people begin to try to make their leader what they want to be. See, that's what's taking place here. Now let me ask you something personal. Or maybe let me get personal for a minute. Could it be that many Christians never find satisfaction, even though they're born again in Christ, they have the resources of the Holy Spirit. Could it be that they never find satisfaction in life? They would never say this, just like Peter would never say this, simply because in reality, as they, as they think of the church and the things of the church and the ministry of the church, in their heart of hearts, they think they're too good to do those kind of things. I'm too important to teach high school kids. I'm too distinguished to get involved in a learning center and waste my time there. My gifts are much bigger. So they're there to build things, giant things, be with important people, not to be with this guy that I don't even like and can't get along with or... You know, when I'm around him, he's a little offensive to me. He doesn't make what I make. He doesn't look as good as I do. He doesn't live where I would live. Yet, his marriage isn't doing too well. But somebody else. Could it be that part of our formula problem is we're looking for the crowd that looks like us or better than us? Uh, positions that look more grand than us? We want to associate ourselves with things much higher so that we can be just like these disciples. We can have our image lifted higher, our, our opportunities made bolder, our position made grander, but not stoop. Could that be part of the problem? So we go after much bigger things and add much grander things, but in the end, what I'm telling you is that equals restlessness. A search for my true humanity. That's what I find it. Are you too good for God's work? you too good to stand up in the marketplace and be a Christian because you don't want that affecting how other business associates think of you? you too good for that? Notice Jesus' response to that statement. Jesus answered him and said, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now, let me say this. He's not saying that you won't be a believer, that you somehow have been jettisoned your faith. The fact is, is, this interchange goes on in verses 8 and 9 and 10. Uh, that issue comes up because Peter says, well, wash all of me. And Jesus said, you don't need to be washed. You're clean. And what, what he was referring to is a symbolic statement of, because you've come to me and believed in me, you're justified before God. You're a believer. You, you have justification, right standing before God. But that doesn't mean that you're going to live right in the world. <laughs> That's why we're back to this particular verse. Yes, you're clean, but that doesn't mean you're right. 
That doesn't mean that you still can't go out and walk dirty. Walk compromised. Walk in such a way that what you get out of life is not a part of me, but a part of it. And it equals restlessness. I equal satisfaction. So I've got to do that for you. What I want you to notice about verse 8 is one word at that last line when Jesus speaks. You might just circle the word I. It's the key. See, that's not something you can do for yourself. You can't find that call on your life. God has got to give that to you. But you say, well, how is He going to give that to me? How do I come to that? I think we come to what God's part is for us. What His call is upon our life. The same way that I came to Christ to begin with. How a person becomes a Christian. See, I can try whatever I want to do to end my restlessness when I was a young man. You know, I tried everything, but in doing all of that, I kept coming to dead ends. And there sometimes comes a place in a person's life when they've tried it all or done it all, hopefully not gone that far, but they've tried so much and it hasn't brought the fulfillment. And they come bankrupt. And so how did I come to Jesus Christ? Well, I came as a young man at a place where I finally said, I can't figure out life. I'd done everything. I couldn't figure it out. So now I'm at this place where I didn't come to God and said, okay, God, I'll make a bargain with you. Or let me make a few suggestions before you give me your life. Before you save me. Or I'm not going to let go of these things, but you've still got to save me. No, you know how I came to God? Just as we sing in those crusades. Without one plea. Just as I am. Not knowing what that was going to mean. Even scared. I was scared when I became a Christian. Because when I gave my life to Christ, I had heard Jesus was calling and He wanted all of my life. And so the idea of giving Him all of my life was a fearful thing. And I didn't know what all meant. I didn't know what was behind the veil. But I came and I didn't try to bargain with Him. I didn't make suggestions. I didn't bring up certain addendums to the contract. I came just as I am without one plea. And I said, I'm yours. And He saved me. But now I've got to live in this life. I've got to live a life that goes on and completes the salvation work that's been started. How do I do that? Well, according to Colossians 2.6, exactly the same way. Because here's what Colossians 2.6 says. In the same way that you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him. Now, how did I receive Jesus Christ? Without suggestions, without objections, without complaints. I just came as I am. How do I discover the work that He has for me? By coming to Christ and saying to Him, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do with my life to really tie it all together in a nice bow so I can die satisfied with life. And I don't come to Him saying, God, I want this work, but I'm not going to do this. And I'm not going to go here. And I'm not going to like this person. I don't come making suggestions. Could whatever you get me to do, can I be with upper class people? <laughs> Are you come to say, now, now, you know, I want the work, but, but listen, I'm not going outside the state of, of Arkansas. I'm just going to keep it within those borders, Lord. See, no, you can't come that way. That's not how you receive Christ in the beginning, and that's not how you walk in Christ. You walk in Christ without one plea, just as I am. I don't know what's on the other side of the veil. It may be things that in my flesh I would not want to do, but I trust just as you gave me life in Christ Justif justifiably so, you'll give life in Christ in a sanctifying way as well. So I come without one plea and say, whatever it is, I come. 
That's how you find the work that you're to do. That's why Jesus said, and you can't do it for yourself. You can't figure it out. You can go, I'm going to do this church activity, and you can run, go to Discovery, and you can go do this, and you can go on a missions trip, and try to fill your life because the church is telling you to do something, though that might help you stumble into something. In the end, only you and God can determine the work. And God comes first. If I do not wash your feet, then you can forget satisfaction. Go ahead and just say, I'm not willing to do it. And put satisfaction up on a shelf and just say, I'm going to enjoy a lot of cheap thrills. But the downside of those cheap thrills is I'm going to stay restless my whole life. Just go ahead and admit it. But don't play a game with God when you're not willing to say, whatever you want me to do. You know when you say that prayer, you know what you're doing symbolically? Symbolically speaking, you're sticking out your feet and saying, wash them. Wash them. That's the way it works in the spiritual world. Now starting in verse 12, he goes on and he makes a few additional statements that I think are helpful. Verse 13, or verse 12, it says, And when he had washed their feet and taken their garments, or taken his garments and reclined at table again, he said to them, Do you know what I've done to you? And of course they didn't. So he makes an explanation. He says, You call me teacher and Lord. That's what you call me. And you're right. Because <laughs> I am. Teacher meaning I'm the one who gives instruction. That's what a teacher does. He points the way. But Lord, now that's a whole different concept. That's that mystical power that, that, that only God can do when He infuses a person's life with a certain dignity and completeness. See, I can't give myself satisfaction. It's got to be given to me. So Jesus not only tells us, I give the direction, but that when you submit and follow that direction as the Lord, I can also empower that direction and give you what you've tried to make happen all your life. I can give it to you by faith. So he says, you're right. And that's my part in all this, is that if you do this, I'm the teacher and Lord, and if I, verse 14, the Lord and the teacher washed your feet, then you ought to wash one another's feet. That's your part. He's saying, you want to know how you can discover life? Then give me your feet. Let me wash them. Then pick up your head. This is your part. And get out and take the arrow off you and start serving others. And as you start serving others in that submissive spirit, and this is what I think he'll do, I will direct you to the work that you should do. Might even be the very thing you're doing right now, but you don't know it because you're not open to it. When you stick out your feet, what you're really doing is opening your spiritual eyes. That's what you're doing. So first, in this passage, we must release our feet to do whatever, whenever, wherever. And secondly, we must pick up our eyes and look at the needs around us and step out. And then in all of that, God will mix that together and He will tie it into a life of satisfaction. Now how do I know He'll do that? Because He says it in the next few verses. For I gave you an example, verse 15, that you should also do as I did to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, neither is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, you are blessed if you do them. Notice the warning in verse 17. 
You might walk out of here saying, boy, that was good. That, that made sense to me. But knowing is not the key. There's a great transition at verse 17. You may know these things, but you are only blessed if you do these things. But the promise in this verse is that if you do these things, you'll be blessed. The, the Greek word there is makarios. It comes from a root word, mak, which means long or deep. And it speaks to a deep and genuine happiness and satisfaction or gratitude out of life. So he says, if you know these things, and though it seems so counter to the world in which we live, if I put the arrow off me and I step out because Jesus has washed my feet, then Jesus' promise is, and that's what it says in verse 17, you will be blessed. And what he says is, it will be not a cheap thrill, not a passing pleasure. It will be long and it will be deep satisfaction. That's His promise. Some of us may be very far from that place. Some of us may be right there at the precipice. And all we need to do is have the courage to jump. But what I proclaim to you is the truth. I really do believe this. Now, there's a time when people come to me and they ask me, what's wrong with my Christian life? I mean, I, I came into this church or some other place and I got so excited about my Christian life and now it's been 10 years and I just feel dull and lifeless. I, I don't feel excited anymore about my Christian life. I want to give you an illustration that maybe you can take with you to just consider in light of all I've said. You know, I like to compare the Christian life with a shuttle launch. All right? You know, in a shuttle launch, if you think about it, it takes two rockets to get people into orbit to fulfill the mission. And you've seen those on the side of the shuttle that just took off this last week on a military adventure. But you see these giant booster rockets on either side of the shuttle craft. And then those boosters explode to lift the whole spacecraft up several thousand feet. And then at some point, they run out of fuel. And in that moment, the command pilot must push a button that ignites the main engines that will then take that spacecraft from that point into orbit to fulfill the mission. Let me tell you how I think that relates to the Christian life. The boosters. What are the boosters? To me, the boosters, if let's say you're brand new here, would be like a worship service. A booster is something to lift you up just a little bit. Not because you're doing it, because you're drawing strength from the energy of others. Maybe it's the men's fraternity. Maybe it was Blue Denim Day. Maybe you've gotten into discovery class. Maybe you're in a season of life congregation. And because of the strength and the power and the energy of others, they have taken you from a place of apathy in the beginning of your spiritual pilgrimage and lifted you up kind of high. But here's what I want you to know. Though those things will always go on in this church, those things only have a short life expectancy for your spiritual life. See, at some time, you'll walk in here and your first day in this worship service, you may say, man, that was good. That really got me going. But 10 years from now, you can come into an even better worship service and if your main engines have never started, all the elements are still there, all the power is still there, all the energy is still there, God is still moving, but you're not going any higher. In fact, you're falling. Because God will not let you ride on the energy of others your whole Christian life. It's a law in the kingdom. Somewhere in that moment 
of being up in the clouds, you've got to push the button yourself. Because it's not like we're on the ground anymore. It's not like we can keep riding the boosters if they fail. If it fails, then what it means is I will begin to feel not satisfaction, not joy, not excitement, but a sense of free fall back to where I was. And it won't feel good. And it will make me restless all the way back down to earth. When are you going to start your engine? See, that's the great transition. And every Christian life follows that. And it's only when you start your engine can you then go on into orbit and discover the mission that God has for you. You know, I believe that God moves that way in individuals, but since this series is on the church and the family, I want you to know that I think God moves that same way in churches, families, a number of years ago, we began to feel some stagnancy here and we've created the season of life and all those things. But let me tell you, more than just form went on in that discussion. Function went on in that discussion because we realized that great worship, good Bible studies and stuff like that cannot make you mature in the end. It can only get you to a certain place. And I want you to know, as I went through this passage, as I prayed over this and thought about it, I believe God gave me a message to give to you over and above this. Gave me personally a message to tell the church spiritually. And the message is this. We're on a path of reaching some unique heights. God has been so good to us. He's blessed us. We are a unique body. We really are. And He's put us in this very favored and privileged position. But because of our courage to get to those new heights, there's going to come a place for our church where we will either explode away from this building and into the community, every one of us, or the church will begin to fall backwards. And I believe God is telling me He will remove His hand from our church. Many of you are going to get to that place at the same time in four years because you're in the season of life group. See, in the end of that season of life experience, one of the things you're going to be asked to do is start your engine. It's going to be a scary thing. It's going to be a scary thing to say, what is God calling me to do? But you need to start praying and availing yourself now to find that. Not then, now. Because if you don't, you know what you're going to want to do? Just watch. You'll get at the end of that time, you'll say, well, I finished four years. What's another season of life group I can get in so I can coast some more? That's not the answer for our church. And I believe God is telling me it's over at that point. We need to get out in the community. We need to have more activities going out there than we do here. Employers, employees need to be doing things and seeing their job in a holistic way and serving Christ. We need to be giving up ourselves and using our resources in whole different ways where our facilities are really the world's facilities and we're mixing it up in all those environments. Not meeting here for protection out there. But that's going to take a lot of courage. That's going to require for you to push the button on your life. You know, recently I went into my daughter's room and I saw something that kind of surprised me. Uh, my oldest daughter has been a swimmer for a number of years and, and being a young girl, I think, in the pursuit of that and all the discipline it requires, she's focused on trying to win. And if you look at her bulletin board, it kind of said that real loudly because it's covered in ribbons and medals and those kind of things that she's won. But the reason I say that is because when I came into her room the other day, I was kind of surprised because there's only so much room on that bulletin board for things that was packed with medals. 
And yet I walked in there and they were all gone. And in place of those medals were pictures of her friends. And I thought to myself in that moment, I said, Golly, that is a great illustration of what I'm feeling inside this week. There comes a place where in the bulletin board of your heart, you've got to get rid of all the things, the medals, the eyes. And in place of those, you've got to put up faces and people and things to go invest your life in because God's calling you to. That's a great, that, that's a great transition. That's a natural transition, I think, for a young teenager. But there's a much more profound spiritual transition that must take place in every heart if you were to ever, ever do anything that causes you at the end of your life, as you lay on your deathbed, to kind of vibrate a little bit all the way down to your toes and deep in your soul and say to yourself, I've done it. It feels good. I was faithful. And I'll go satisfied. Let's pray together. Lord, we would come before You in this final moment just saying, we don't know what to do. Going out and just doing something isn't the answer. Just trying to take on an activity. But because the Christian life is desperately dependent on a touch from the living God, not formulas, not principles all lined up that then equal a job or a test of my abilities, there finally comes a place where only You can wash our feet and point them in the direction of a work that would be truly satisfying. It might even be our own job. But until we hear from You, it will be only a job, not a ministry. I pray that You would touch us, Lord. I pray that Your Spirit would come upon us and anoint this body in such a way that the community will hear from us in the years ahead in a tremendous way and not with us trying to cram anything down their throat, but us living before them and serving them in such a way that they would say, the invisible God has become visible through you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.